Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 239, Henry VIII and his realm. I still have a special sponsor, and I mean super cool Studio Regent wireless headphones. I love them. Wear them in many places, they're not bed yet. They sound as clear as a bell. They are so easy to use after all those wire-based ones I've had to throw away over the last six years. And actually, they look great too. And when they look great, I look great. But it's not just all about me, because there is a special 15% discount for all of you as well. Just go to studiosweden.com and enter England when you order. Let me also remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network, a smorgasbord of independent podcasters. The Agora Podcast of the Month is not actually a podcast, it's a Facebook site, the Agora Podcast Listeners Forum, where we meet digitally to discuss topics we raise or listeners raise. It is a full and frank exchange of views, so come along. Just hop along to Facebook and search for Agora Podcast Listeners Forum, and there you will find us. Last time, we heard about the conservative religious reaction, and the stool under Cromwell's feet wobbled and the noose that lay around every Tudor politician's neck, slung over the roof beam of state, tightened alarmingly. But we can leave all that to a future episode, because this week, I think we should go back a step. Because we've not heard about all that other stuff that went on in the 1530s to do with Cromwell and Henry's governance of the realm during that decade. And let me tell you, there is some very cool stuff. So, over the next two episodes, we're going to talk about how Henry and Cromwell managed Henry's kingdom, and some of the fundamental changes Cromwell engineered along the way. Now this means we're going to have to leave the odiferous air of London and head for the cleaner atmosphere of the provinces. We're going to start today by reflecting on the nature of lordship, justice and governance in Henry's England. Then we're going to whiz to the north to see how Henry and Cromwell policies played there. Next time, we'll travel westwards to Wales and beyond the sea to Ireland. 
Let us start, therefore, with where we've got to with the political nation, which effectively means lordship. Because if we're going to talk about governance of the realm, then we are inevitably going to end up talking about lordship. Now, you will remember that Henry VII was suspicious of his nobility, and by the end of his realm had been regularly beating them up over the head with forced loans and threats and all that sort of thing, and relying on the rather more dependent gentry in his inner circle. I'm going to say Empson and Dudley again, just like old times. His son, Henry VIII, though, was much more positive about his nobility when he came to the throne. Raised on stories of Arthur, and with his head firmly turned by the sparkliness that is chivalry, he'd gathered the scions of the nobility around him. He played with them, he promoted them back to the king's council. But, despite this later in the reign, the son of the Duke of Norfolk, the Earl of Surrey, he had a go at Henry, saying, These new erected men would leave no noblemen alive. The Earl of Surrey is a chap we will talk about someday because, well, he's a character, though he's a character not given to moderate opinions. But on this one, especially in the face of the oik Cromwell, Surrey was not alone. Lord Darcy voiced the same opinion, hurling at Cromwell defiantly that, Ere thou die, though thou wouldst procure all the noblemen's heads within the realm to be stricken off, yet there shall one head remain that shall strike off thy head. Henry, however, was affronted at the very thought he'd been hunting down the nobility. In a possibly rather hurt tone, he recalled how few nobles there had been in the king's council when he came to the throne, and how he had restored the nobility to his side and to partnership in the governance of the realm. And both sides actually could be right. Henry, without doubt, had no desire to destroy his nobility and was thoroughly traditional in wanting them by him in council but he also wanted the relationship between the king and the nobility to change, for them to be with him at court while the crown and its agents governed the realm, rather than being dependent on the nobility to rule the provinces on his behalf. It is the concept referred to by historians as a service nobility. Before we go on, we should define who we're talking about here, because I confess I get confused, and I have a sneaking suspicion that I am not alone. I should apologise in that some of this we have covered a bit before. I thought it was last year, so I looked it up, and it was in fact almost two years ago. How time flies when you're having fun, as they say. The first bit of confusion, actually the main bit of confusion, is whether the gentry qualifies as nobility or not. And I think that is a movable question depending on who you ask, to be honest. For my purposes then, I shall henceforth refer to the nobility as the baronage. So, from the top downwards in order of precedence... Dukes, Marquises, Earls, Viscounts, Barons. Now this is a titchy tiny number of families, about 55, yes, 55. These are the lay lords who sat in the upper house of Parliament. These are the people whose nobility had been created at some point by the king and inherited through one noble descendant through the process of primogeniture. Now, there is an important difference with France which will one day become greatly relevant, because in France, nobility was of the blood, inherited by all male children, and with it came a whole load of fiscal and judicial privileges, such as freedom from taxation in particular. It's a distinction which in the fullness of time created less social mobility in France, a mass of local regional legal distinctions and complexity, and a big public finance problem, all of which will contribute to the French Revolution, but that is some way off. 
Anyway, I digress. 55 nobles then. And below them came the gentry, who I'm not counting as noble. And there are a lot more of them. Let's say somewhere between four and 5,000 families. It could be at the start of the reign that the gentry amounted to somewhere south of 1% of the population of England. 1%. Now their number might have grown quite significantly to 2% after the dissolution of the monastery, had worked its way through the system, and members of the yeomanry had worked their way up and into the gentry. Still a very small number, but as I say, however hideously hierarchical and rigid it all seems to us now, actually, it's relatively porous. Because of the primogeniture rule, much of the horror and chagrin, the younger sons of the nobility were constantly falling through the floor of nobility into the living room of the gentry. Meanwhile, the richer husbandmen would haul themselves up the stairs to the yeomanry and the yeomanry into said gentry's living room, there to be joined by grubby people from the town, merchants, you, lawyers. And the living room of the gentry was itself a house of many rooms. At the top of the tree, you had about 200 knights, those rich enough to be actually bothered to get themselves knighted, along with all the accompanying fees and duties. And then the mass of esquires and gentlemen. However, all of these folks, nobles and gentry, were held together by one thing. They were all gentle. All gentlemen and gentlewomen, and north of gentlemen and gentlewomen. Gentility was the floor. So, how do you define a gentleman? It's not necessarily as simple as being the kind of people who hold doors open for podcasters. Nor was it like Heath Ledger and Knight's Tale and all that modern egalitarian baloney about it being more about nobility of spirit and behaviour, though that is coming, that is coming. Nope, despite all the lack of definition and nuance, it's just like the chaos of a bar on a Saturday night in an English pub. It looks like chaos, but actually everybody knows exactly where they are and who's next. And if anyone steps out of line, then we'll be hell to pay. Oh yes. Eyebrows will be raised, feet will shuffle, and worst of all, worst of all, ladies and gentlemen, it is entirely possible that the ultimate English sanction will be applied and someone will tut. A chap called Sir Thomas Smith would write in Elizabethan times with the perfect definition that a gentleman was someone who could live idly and without manual labour. Now, this is neat and will be central to English success in future centuries, if success I will be allowed to call it, which frankly I doubt. This is neat, because it is really pretty vague, and with vagueness, as, as arts graduates all know, comes happiness. It's only clear definitions that create despair, since once you know what you're dealing with, you have to deal with it. Essentially, Smith said that if you could financially support the charge and countenance of a gentleman, you would be taken for one. So, if you looked like a gentleman, if you smelt like a gentleman, if you tasted like a gentleman, then you probably were one. And the benefits of being gentle were legion, though broadly of the soft, insidious, social networking and privilege kind we find so difficult to eradicate even today. Wild. You couldn't do that in France. Or not to acquire the privilege of nobility, you couldn't. You needed proof. A piece of paper. Much of the profile of lordship remains the same as when we spoke about it all that time ago. Nobles continued to be lords of both men and land. While land remained the very basis of wealth, equally important was the number of men you could raise, the manred, formed mainly of your tenantry. 
given the slowness of communication, power, authority and protection was likely to come from those closest by, those most able to provide protection. Despite all the laws of livery and maintenance, the great men continued to command an affinity and usually maintain a network outside the strict confines of their household, so against the law then. So, if I was the man of the Earl of Arundel, I might well wear a discreet badge showing the horse of Arundel and even wear robes with his colours on special occasions or when attending court. If the king went to war, I would also join Arundel's band. A hundred years after Henry and his captains marched to Agincourt, still the noble retinues formed the basis of the Tudor army. And of the war bands that paraded in front of Henry VIII in 1539 when it seemed the world was about to turn and bite him on the bum. Henry would also hire the mercenaries, of course, Landsknecht, Swiss pikemen, without whom you could not compete in war. There was specialisation at the Royal Armoury in artillery in particular, but in terms of warm bodies, it came still from the nobility and the gentry's tenants. Now, if you were Henry, yes, you might be running around with puppy-like enthusiasm, glorying in the traditional partnership between king and noble, but at night, when nobody was around and the fears of the world came to visit, you might well suffer some loss of sleep. Because Henry, unlike most of the crowned heads of Europe, had no standing army, apart from a couple of hundred beefeaters and garrisons at Calais and Berwick. So, it used to be thought that the Tudors were not friendly towards their nobility and strove to break their power. As we said, Henry VII and Henry VIII both passed laws against retaining both executed nobles. In the end, by the time of Cromwell, both were promoting a far greater role in government for the gentry. But in fact, Henry VIII was not anti-noble. He loved them. But they kept messing up, so he had to cut their knees off. Buckingham and Darcy for rebellion, Henry Percy in 1537 for, well, incompetence. Actually, it was just that Henry VIII and others of his dynasty wanted this new relationship with their nobles, what the historians call a service nobility. The idea of a service nobility is this. So, if you were Billy the Conch, your nobility went into the countryside, maintained armed feudal knights, crushed smelly Anglo-Saxons, delivered justice through their manorial courts, maintained the king's peace and supported royal officials. Every so often, you'd see them at war or at a magnum concilium. Apart from that, no news is good news. Off you go to your constituencies and govern on behalf of the king. If you were a Henry Tudor, you wanted something different. You wanted your nobility to be around at court where you could see them. And for a good proportion of the year, you wanted them to do the government jobs you provided, which would have the advantage not just of getting those jobs done, but keeping them dependent on you. And meanwhile, the Crown would administer the King's justice through its apparatus of assizes and sheriffs and county courts. And actually, do you know, the new compact worked reasonably well for the most part and met with the dynamics of the countryside that were in operation by the mid-16th century. The gentry were becoming richer and more self-confident and they weren't entirely sure they needed the support and protection of the nobility anymore. And anyway, it was likely the knights and gentlemen that hoovered up most of the county appointments anyway. The relationship between crown and gentry was much more direct as the reigns of Henry VII and Henry VIII progressed. If you were a lesser lord, actually you might find yourself restricted to recruiting yeomanry into your affinity because the gentry were getting far too uppity and independent. 
most nobles therefore realised that their best hope for advancement did indeed lie in royal patronage and crown service at the centre. And so to court they came, and jostled and prinked and preened, in the hope of catching the eye of the monarch and landing a plum job. There was no time to brood in your country house or castle and plot rebellion. There was a limit to this extension of royal power into the regions, particularly when it came to the very tippy-top of the noble tree, so the earls of Derby, the Stanleys, still held sway in Lancashire. The earls of Shrewsbury dominated Derbyshire and Arundel, Sussex. An earl of Worcester had been re-established. The Duke of Suffolk dominated the county of Lincolnshire. By the way, every so often someone asks me, with some exasperation actually, why the title of the earl doesn't correspond to the centre of their territorial strength, a point rather reinforced by this list. I agree, it's daft. It might be that the king decided originally to revive an old earldom that was in abeyance, or maybe the family's caput, that is their HQ or home manor, was in the county of their earldom, even though their biggest estates lay elsewhere, or maybe simply the location of their largest estates had changed as they bought and sold and married. So, while the nobility were now away from their estates at court, the rest of the country, country being the generic name for a locality, the rest of the country had to get on with it, giving even greater leeway to the gentry and further encouraging the trend, and of course giving greater prominence to the organs of central government. One of those Organs was justice, as it has ever been throughout our podcast. For the Crown, the administration of justice was at once a duty, sworn to in their coronation oath, an expression of their sovereignty in the maintenance of their gift and duty, the King's peace, and a nice little money spinner, though relatively less important than in the days of Henry II. Looking back, Tudor justice looks pretty ropey to us, Part of the problem is that the words we use are often the same then and now in modern times, juries and courts and verdicts and so on, though it jars when we realise that the processes and standards often were not the same. And we have some very high-profile examples of show trials, such as Anne Boleyn and Thomas More, which were surely politically motivated and rigged. It's almost obligatory to refer to Henry VIII as a vicious tyrant now, partly because of these show trials and his seemingly random head-and-bowel removal policy. But, actually, there is actually some more fundamental evidence to support the idea of him being a tyrant. Listen to this. Of our absolute power, we be above the laws. Blimey, O'Reilly, this isn't Louis Fourteenth, as you might expect. This is Henry. Then there are the treason laws of 1534 and the penalties that come with law. Ah, the penalties! Appalling to our ears. There is that famous exchange between William Kingston, constable of the Tower, and Anne Boleyn as she was admitted to the Tower. Shall I die without justice? she asks. The poorest object the king hath hath justice, replied the loyal jailer. The queen, ha <laughs> ha, laughed with irony in his face. She didn't believe a word of it. But, but, despite all this, the tyranny actually never quite happened. As I said recently, of 883 cases of treason, only 308 result in convictions, and I have learned since that 287 of these were cases of open rebellion. There is the other side of that exchange between Anne and William, i.e. William's side, his statement. You might think he was just trying to hold the royalist line, and maybe he was, but actually, the Tudors believed deeply in their law and in the efficacy of their law, and indeed in the sanctity of their law. 
Thomas Wyatt, in the Tower in 1541 and charged with treason, reminded himself of Lord Dacre's acquittal in 1534 against the King's desire, and yet no reprisals had followed against the jury. Although some of the new laws and penalties terrified, they were largely unused. In England, unlike much of Europe, torture was not used as an ordinary part of the legal process. Ironically, it's under Elizabeth rather than Henry that England has her period of officially sanctioned torture. No judges were removed by Henry, very few jurors ever punished. There is little doubt that Henry's reign engendered fear, which people would remember in his son's reign, but Henry would stack up as a bit of a wuss in a competition against history's tyrants in the Tyrant's Oscars ceremony. The justice in which the Tudors put so much faith was of three kinds, common law, equity and statute. Common law was created by custom of the people and decisions of judges. It was old, established. And critically, it was very difficult to abuse and subvert by central government, being built up brick by brick, decision by decision. But by Henry's day, it was a bit of a mess. A complicated process, long and difficult, with jurors and assizes open to local influence and local abuse. If you were the local strongman in front of court, you took 50 bully boys with you who gave meaningful, hard Paddington stares at the jurors, and the outcome was usually predictable. Which meant that people were abandoning common law for equity. The courts of Chancery and Star Chamber, sitting under the Chancellor, were faster Unlike Roman law was based on the decision of the judges, not jurors, on the decisions of the experts. And under men like Wolsey and Thomas More, equity courts did indeed process cases faster and with justice. Wolsey was proud and confident that he would always administer impartial justice, as he did, and as did famously his successor Thomas More. More, of course, gets much adulation for this, but in this he followed the master he despised, Thomas Wolsey. But in equity law was also a massive risk. It depended utterly on the probity of the lawmen that operated it, and it was relatively easily subverted by the monarch should they so desire. Another form of equity was canon law, church law, which governed the spiritual and moral lives of the people. It might be events like marriage, or it might be any contract involving the observation of an oath, since perjury would condemn the wrongdoer to hell, so slander, breach of promise, was considered a breach of the church's laws. The apparatus of royal and church justice ran alongside an even older private system of justice, the manorial courts. It's easy to dismiss such courts, since in the end they will indeed be swept away. And they deal with things like mm, cows eating too much grass on the common. It's often pretty basic stuff. But actually, for the vast majority, the manor court would be the preference and the standard was absolutely in the Lord's interest to establish peace and harmony on his estates and therefore administer good, impartial, credible justice. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In all of this governance, the role of the commoner was essentially 
to be ruled. It is worth noting, of course, that the principle of consent to government through parliament and statute law applied to commoners as it did for nobility, gentry, townspeople and yeomanry. But in practice, below the level of husbandmen, none of the apparatus of power and influence in parish life was open to them. Unlanded wage earners occupied no positions of trust and power in the localities. Nor are we yet beyond the age of the serf, of unfree bondsmen, though time has been called on them and they are disappearing, becoming rent-paying tenants or wage labourers, but they will survive as a significant group throughout the 16th century. And, as we have frequently had occasion to mention, the very basis of the structure of society was a divinely ordained one of order from the greatest to the smallest. The very idea of popular democracy was abhorrent, a tyranny of the people, the rule by people too ignorant to exercise power and an inversion of the right order of things when outrageously silly things like this might happen. The foot taketh upon him the part of the head. The commons is become king. However, on occasion the commons did exercise power, or at least try to, usually driven by poverty or local dispute. On occasions such as the Pilgrimage of Grace, the cause of rebellion was more widespread than a purely local issue and was viciously crushed. More common were local uprisings and riots, which were ignored by the Crown and dealt with locally. Occasionally, local communities could work together and exercise influence and achieve change. Although this inversion was the absolute terror of the Tudor political class, there was an obscure pride in the possibility and presence of dissent that there was a danger that every Englishman could be pushed too far and the result would be a local riot or rebellion, and that despite the social outrage that engendered, it was better to discuss and negotiate to stop it. Here is a bloke I need to read up about at some point, from whom my only knowledge at the moment is my memory of the piteous moans of my fellow A-level students who were beaten, cajoled, threatened and bribed into studying the Fairy Queen. I speak of the poet Edmund Spencer. He wrote in Elizabethan days that in England every man standeth upon himself and buildeth his fortune upon his own faith and self-assurance. We should make more of the glorious tradition of dissent in England, but we'll come to that in future centuries and I'll start sounding like Billy Bragg if I'm not careful. Now then, I am conscious of wandering off the point just a little. For the most part, all of this structure of government and administration of justice thing kind of worked within its wide latitude of casual and endemic corruption. And as the Tudors came to operate their principles of a service nobility, the nobility recognised the benefits of patronage. They dragged themselves reluctantly to court. The most ambitious of the gentry dragged themselves there too and gained employment as lawyers or advisers or gained lesser offices of the household. Meanwhile in the regions, the families and households of the nobility and or the gentry exercised the levers of royal power and government. Fine. But there was a problem. And finally we get Thomas Cromwell, because there were dangerous exceptions to this pretty picture, and Thomas was a tidy man and did not like exceptions to a pretty picture. England was honeycombed with what they called liberties, royal rights given away and franchised for some ancient purpose. Many of these liberties were small and not that nationally significant, the rights of sanctuary, for example, or the rights along the Strand in London. But where it became significant was in the borderlands, in the marches, 
in the north, on the border with Scotland, in the west, in and on the borders of Wales, and in Ireland. These liberties together might have amounted to a third of England. The Northern Marches, Welsh Marches, Palatinate of Durham, Duchy of Lancaster. In these areas, the King's writ did not run. The operation of King's power was interrupted, and Cromwell wanted them gone. He wanted Northumberland to be governed like Wiltshire. There were other areas, actually, like Devon and Cornwall, where the power of the local magnates, the Courtenays, were so great that they were almost as dominant as the Great Liberties. The north of England, then, was traditionally dominated by a series of great families. The Percy family in the northeast, the Darcy family, Cliffords and Dakers in Yorkshire and the northwest. Here was the plan. The Yorkists had already established a regional council in the north, whose job it was to distribute the great offices and patronage and provide an overview and oversight. So key positions like Warden of the Western, Middle and Eastern Marches were granted out, for example. Now, the Council of the North was essentially a talking shop for the great and the good. Real power lay with these magnate families. The regional council was an expression of their local dominance. Cromwell's idea was to turn that around 180 degrees. So, if he could break the power of the northern magnates, he could then appoint members of the local gentry to that regional council, he could appoint president not of the magnate families, nor indeed from the Bishopric of Durham. He'd have to tackle the powers of the Bishop of Durham too, whose creation had lain in the need for the Norman kings to conquer and hold the north. The Bishop of Durham had absolute rights of justice within his palatinate, could freely pardon wrongdoers, and rightdoers I suppose, though they might wonder why. It was free from royal jurisdiction. It was the bishop's private shire, essentially. Nice. In 1534, therefore, Cromwell had a hack, first of all, against the Dakers. Dacre was hauled into court on charges of having colluded with the Scots. To achieve this, Cromwell played on local rivalries like the master politician he was, using the ambitions of the Cumbrian gentry to engineer the attack. Actually, to Cromwell's horror, the charge of treason failed, leading to acquittal, an acquittal which could bring hope years later to Thomas Wyatt, as we've said. But the job of breaking Dacre's authority had largely succeeded. The offices were redistributed. The trouble was, it was another magnate that took them over, the Cliffords. Then along came the Pilgrimage of Grace, which you might think to be a disaster for Cromers, since the rebels hated him so. But for Cromwell, it was perfect. They had played right into his sticky and very probably chubby little hands. Darcy went to the gallows, Clifford was implicated and broken, and power, jobs and authority transferred to local gentry families dependent on the crown for their survival and success. And then in 1536, he also took on the Palatinate, and in the act of resumption, most of the bishop's powers were taken back by the crown. In the northeast, he had a stroke of luck, in that the Percy family was in some disarray. The head of the family was Henry Percy, erstwhile Anne Boleyn hopeful, who had been warned off by Wolsey and married to Mary Talbot, daughter of the Earl of Shrewsbury. It was not a happy marriage, and they hated each other, and eventually they separated. Nor did Henry Percy get on with his brothers, but by the time of the Pilgrimage of Grace, although he remained loyal, Henry Percy was desperately ill. So, rather remarkably, since he had no children and didn't like his brothers, in 1537 he gifted his entire inheritance to the crown. Well, as you can imagine, Henry and Cromwell could barely contain their glee. Little hops and fist pumps and giggles, and in 1537 
Henry duly and helpfully died, and the transfer was made with more little hops and fist pump and giggles, no doubt. In 1537, Cromwell completed the job by reconstituting the Council of the North with a loyalist Robert Holgate as president, and Holgate would usefully serve the crown for 11 years. Interestingly, he didn't exclude those old magnate families from power and influence. Dacre, Darcy, Clifford, all were appointed alongside gentry families such as Bowes and Yours. But now they were subject to a president appointed by the crown from the outside, to legal advice and to process and to the counterbalance of the local gentry. Cromwell and Henry would have been well pleased with how this worked and there is little doubt that if the objective was to bring the North into a direct relationship with the Crown and sweep away a liberty which was an obstruction to the operation of royal government, it was a success, tick, gold star, all of that. But, but, there was a problem. The problem was that the reasons for the creation of these powerful lordships were still relevant. The borders were a lawless band of violence, some of the land disputed between Scottish and English crowns, raiding, stealing and murder, a part of daily hard and miserable life. So for these lords in the north, the idea of becoming a service nobility, of spending half of their lives at court, was fraught with problems. If they did, there was a better than evens chance they'd come home to the north and find their home and households a smoking ruin. As a result, some of the northern lords simply didn't play ball with the Tudor idea of a service nobility and stayed at home. Robert Lord Ogle, for example, just ignored court. He never went there and he died fighting for the crown on his borders in 1545. The powerful magnates in the north had served a purpose, to have the military strength and financial muscle to fight the English corner on the border. Their personal interests and the interests of stability were congruent. So, for example, Dacre had built up his lands on the border in Cumbria, buying and acquiring whatever land he could. And since it was essentially a war zone, bandit country, the land had come cheap to him. With more land, rents and tenants, and they built them tough up there, not like Hertfordshire or Surrey or something, Dacre was then in a stronger position to resist Scottish raids, and indeed carry out successful raids himself. With stability and strong defence and effective protection, income from those lands increased. And so now we have a virtuous circle. But now those guys have been chucked out of their jobs. So imagine the scene. You are ambitious gentry William Yore, and there's a Scottish raid. You try to put together a powerful band of hard-faced warriors to send them packing, only to find that Dacre tells you he's doing his hair that evening, couldn't possibly make it with his men. It's a fundamental flaw. Another example, the critical castle and estate of Liddell on the border theoretically was the responsibility of the Crown, but their delegate to manage Liddell's resources and maintain the defence there was a small impoverished barony split into six co-heiresses. As a result, Liddell was no longer an effective defence. The deep connection between the land and local power had been disrupted. The super summary in the north is that to some degree Cromwell's plan did indeed work but it was always partial, or at least it always had negative consequences. There were those lords who could never put presence at court ahead of the health of their estates, and defence of the north was seriously impaired, and would only really be resolved when one man became king of both Scotland and England in the person of James I. There we go then. 
Next week, as it happens, we have a guest episode by Glenn Longwell on the legend of Robin Hood. I have long wanted to dig into the various legends and understand what they all mean and which ones are true and all the rest of it, but never got round to it. So, after Glenn interviewed me for his podcast, The Glenn and Dean Show, we got to talking and the subject came up. It turned out to be an area he knows and loves, so Banzai. We agreed he'd do a guest episode and it will be here next week. You can also hear Glenn talking about Robin Hood and films on Beyond the Big Screen, by the way. And incidentally, if there's going to be any kind of vote for best ever Robin Hood movie, let me just say my vote goes to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves for two reasons. Firstly, because I love Kevin Costner films. Sorry about that. Secondly, because there never will be a Sheriff of Nottingham that even approaches Alan Rickman. The week after that, we will have Wales and Ireland, Rhys Ap Griffith and Catherine Howard, the Earl of Kildare and Silken Thomas. Until then, thank you very much all for listening. Live long and prosper. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.